Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Uh, Turn back to Revelation chapter 3, where we were just reading a moment ago, and we'll continue our study through these uh, first couple of chapters in Revelation, where we see Jesus' messages to various churches of that time, also messages for us here today in each one of them. I'm not sure if you'll notice or if you have noticed, but for the first time in five weeks, a sermon outline on your bulletin uh, this morning. It's a little bit different. Uh, Jesus' message to these seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, it's so similar. You could use about the same outline uh, in studying them all, except for this morning. See, usually Jesus, he begins his message to the church by identifying himself. And and while he does that to the church of Philadelphia here this morning in verses 7 to 13, uh, it's longer, it's a longer than usual communication about who he is for them. Uh, another difference is that normally after complimenting the church on what they're doing right, uh, normally Jesus critiques the church, telling them what needs to be corrected. That, but there's no critique at all here for the church in Philadelphia. And, and Jesus' message to this church is also unique um, from the others because in it we have one of the strongest Bible passages that teach us about Jesus coming back for Christians and what we call the rapture. That, that before Christ's second coming back down to earth to judge the wicked, to establish his millennial kingdom, before that, Jesus is going to return in the air to rapture us, to, to call up the bodies of those Christians who have died prior, uh, giving them an eternal glorified body just like his resurrection body. Are you reuniting that with their eternal spirit that's been in heaven since they were called home? And also uh, calling us who are alive here on earth and we have placed our faith in Jesus, calling us home. Right in the middle of this letter to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus teaches us about, teaches us about his return uh, to come and get us in the rapture. Before we study this, uh, this is exciting stuff here then this morning, right? Before we study it, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this section of scripture. Um, in, in Titus, you refer to what is being discussed here as our blessed hope. And I pray that that is exactly what it is. Um, it, it is only that if we are in a, a constant, a consistent state of looking for your return, it can only be our, our blessed hope, the, the encouragement that you've designed it to be for us, Jesus coming back for us, it can only be that if we're looking and hastening, just as you tell us to in First Peter, the return of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd inspire our hearts to live that way, beginning this morning, through these verses. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's look at the communication. Um, really, Jesus' identification of who he is to the church uh, in Philadelphia. Um, Christ breaks away, in this instance, from his normal pattern uh, of using phrases, descriptions from chapter 1. Uh, to identify himself. Instead, Jesus describes himself to the Christians in this church and to us this morning, right there in verse 7. Jesus says, I am he that is holy. 
And I do believe that there's a desired intent in Jesus making that particular attribute. The first one that he lists that he mentions, Jesus, is holy. Meaning he's sinless, of course we understand that. He's perfect, he's set apart. He's completely unique. And one particular way that Jesus is holy, that he's completely unique, is that he's self-existent. He is the creator. Everything else, including us, creation. And by describing himself this way, Jesus is making a claim to deity, a claim of divinity, because only God is holy. And Jesus says here, I am holy. Thus he's saying he is God. He's also holy, not just in his self-existence, but his self Sufficient. Jesus has no need of anything. We need him for everything. And that what he said in John chapter 15, without me you can do nothing. And here in verse 7, Jesus also wants to communicate to this church and to us here that he's true. I'm he that is true. That was Christ's claim in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That was uh, the prophetic promise of God's word centuries before Jesus would come. As a baby in Bethlehem, in Psalm 8510, uh, the psalmist there looking forward to Jesus and specifically his saving work for us on the cross, God says in Psalm 8510, mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Talking about who God would be for us in Jesus Christ. He's holy, he's true. And next in verse 7 it says, I am he that has a key of David. That openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. What does Jesus want us to know about himself? That's kind of an enigmatic description there. Well, he's sovereign. He's sovereign over salvation. As the promised Messiah descended from D David, uh, when, da when Jesus says, I'm he that has the keys of David, he's saying, I'm the gate of salvation. Jesus claimed as much. I'm the door to salvation. And so may we never think that our salvation from sin and death is something that we do or that we invented ourselves. No, what is the cry of the great multitude of the redeemed in heaven? We'll get there in a few weeks. Revelation 7, uh, 10 says that a multitude beyond number from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, their cry is this, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to his lamb. Amen? Salvation comes from him. He's sovereign, he's holy, he's true, sovereign over salvation. Jesus opens each letter to these churches by describing himself because he wants us to know who he is for us. That's important. Pastor A.W. Tozer, he once said, what comes to your mind when you think about God, that's the most important thing about you. Not your job, not where you live, not your hobbies. What comes to your mind when you think about God, that's the most important thing about you. Why? Well, because our worship... The very thing that we were created, that's the reason you were born. If you were wondering why you were born, you were born to glorify God. Uh, until we're saved, we don't do so good on that. That's the reason why you're reborn. You're born again. You're saved. It's to glorify God. And our worship is going to be as pure or as base. It's going to be as exalted and excellent and pleasing to God or as common, run-of-the-mill, even vile, as we entertain high or low thoughts about God. We need to know who God is. And that's why Jesus, at each one of these letters, he's telling us who he is. And we're to meditate on that and, and hide that in our heart. Our faith in God's grace, the, the very thing by which we are saved from sin and death, our faith is going to be as strong or it's going to be as sorry as what we know about the one in whom we place our faith. 
Do you see how important these self uh, revelations and these opening descriptions in these letters are? It's not just something to run through. And that Christian, desire, desire to deeply, intimately know Jesus Christ. He wants you to know him that way. He knows you that way. Let's look at the commendation now, verses 8 to 10. So this is where Jesus tells them what they're doing good. Verse 8 opens up with a familiar phrase. I, I know thy works. He's told a number of churches that. Uh, and with the exception of his message to the church in Smyrna back in chapter 2, usually after telling them, I know your works, he begins to tell them about some area in those works that's not perfect and that needs some adjustment, needs to be brought in line with God's word and his will. Um, but not here. Jesus tells him, instead, I've set before you an open door. And some people think that uh, Jesus is referring here to the salvation that he just was talking about, that they have an open door, you know, uh, an open door into heaven is ahead for them because they're Christians. It could be. But others, including myself, I believe that this open door is a reference to some ministry, uh, to some mission that Jesus has provided for them. If you understand where the city of Philadelphia was uh, in that day and age, it's in modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor, and it's like an outpost. It's a tiny little village. Uh, as far as all these uh, different letters to these seven churches, this is the smallest city. Um, and it was founded as an outpost by the Greek culture to take their culture to the uncultured peoples in that little hick rural area of, of Asia Minor to spread Greek wisdom and Greek politics and ethics and civilization to these uncivilized people. And so in a similar way, Jesus is giving this church on the frontier, this outpost, he's giving them an open door to spread the life-given, life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ to those who hadn't heard it yet. It's likely that the church in Philadelphia probably founded, uh, planted through Paul's um, evangelistic efforts in the city of Ephesus. Back months ago when we were studying through the book of Acts together, uh, we learned, I think it was on Paul's second missionary journey when he was in Ephesus, that, I mean, God richly blessed that so that it says every person in Asia Minor heard the gospel. Every single person in, a, in an area that is now as big as the country of Turkey, uh, they all, doesn't say all got saved, says they all heard the gospel. And it's probable that this church was founded at that time. And um, Jesus here, he's just, he's saying to them, I want you to continue that kind of fervor for missions. You, you were planted as a church this way. All of you got saved through that. Now you go and do it. You go do it to people who haven't heard the gospel. <clears throat> I know when we hear Philadelphia, we're probably thinking that metropolis, right, up there in southeast Pennsylvania. Uh, this, this, this Philly is different. Not like that. Smallest of all the cities, Jesus addresses. And, and being the smallest city, I imagine that the church was probably on the small side too. What does Jesus say here? They have little strength, right? In verse 8. This is still under the compliment section. Uh, the commendation section. Um, I, I don't think you ought to take that as a backhanded compliment. Um, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. Our, our focus should be on the strength and not the little. I, I remember um, <laughs> when I moved down here in the Army, well, more so when I got out of the Army and moved down to Bladen County because, like, Fables just got too many people from all over the world, Right? Um, but I came down here and I started hearing that phrase and I've told you before that phrase bless your heart it took me about 14, 15 years to realize that wasn't a compliment 
even a backhanded one. It really wasn't. I thought people were being nice to me. I said, well, thank you. I need to be blessed. I didn't realize they meant, you poor pitiful wretch. I'm so glad I'm not you. And Craig bought me a little sign that I keep in my office. Craig Lennon did. And I look at it. I don't know if I should take that as a compliment from him or not. It's like a permanent one. But, but Jesus isn't doing that here when he says you have a, a, a little strength. Um, let me tell you, this is a source of great encouragement for me as your pastor in a small old rural church in Bladen County. And I love it here. And you ought to love it here because God's doing great things here. Because little is much when God is in it, right? Isn't that what that old hymn says? Little is much when God uh, is in it. I hope we can learn to live out what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples when he fed the 5,000 and 4,000, those two different times. What did he say to his disciples? They said, we can't feed these. What do you want us to do? He said, what do you have? What do you have? So I got five loaves and two fish. Jesus is trying to teach us there, focus on what you got. And when we give to God all of what we got, he can do great things, can he? He will do great things when we do that. Uh, finally, Jesus commends them in verse 8 because this is their consistent testimony, right? You've kept my word, Christians at the church in Philadelphia, and you've not denied my name. That's the testimony of a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. We will have all lived for Jesus if at our life's end those same words come from the mouth of our Lord and Savior about us. You've kept my word. You've lived in obedience to my word and my will for your life, and you've not denied my name. Listen, that ought to be the metric, the metric for success in the Christian life. That ought to be the metric for success, a successful church. Um, whether or not we are living for the Lord uh, or we as a church are doing what the Lord's asked of us, uh, that, that should not be measured by any other standard than that right there. Not the size of our building, not how many people are coming to this service or to that service. Uh, have we kept God's word? <laughs> do we know it? Do we love it? Do we share it? Do we teach it? Do we obey it? Do we respond to it? Do we bring our lives into alignment with it? Have we kept God's word and are we proudly proclaiming the name of Jesus? And if so, the Lord is pleased with us. We're doing what he's asked. We're successful in his eyes. Now, I don't think what Jesus says in verses 9 and 10, I thought about making this a separate point uh, and calling it uh, the comfort because Jesus does move, move from commending them, complimenting here to, to comforting them. Back in chapter nine, uh, 2, verse 9, Jesus did the same thing for the church in Smyrna um, because they were facing the same type of deal. Uh, they had Jews who were a part of that culture and were there and were present and they were persecuting them in Smyrna. The same thing is happening here in Philadelphia. And the Lord calls them here and back in chapter 2 as well. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. And the comfort that he gives these Christians in verse 9 is that there's a day coming when those who are persecuting you for your faith in Jesus, they are going to come and they're going to worship the Lord at your feet. They're not going to worship you. They're going to worship the Lord. But you're going to witness that. And they'll know that I love you. Uh, Christian, be comforted. There, there is coming a day when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. Now, we got an option. This is what God wants in his great grace and love and mercy. He wants us to do so now in willful and joyful submission to Jesus Christ. Or we're going to do it later, but you're going to do it. You'll do it later prior to condemnation. And the Christians in Philadelphia, they had persevered. Jesus says here in, uh, in verse 10, that they've kept 
You've kept the word of my patience. So their obedience, they're keeping God's word. They're, they're not denying his name. That was a consistent thing for them. Not, they were faithful not only in easy days. They were faithful when times got tough. And because of that, Jesus gives them. Here's a rapture. He gives them this great promise of comfort. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. So Jesus promises them. And he promises us who follow in their footsteps of faith, he promises us the rapture. I, I don't know if you still got these. If you don't, be bringing them. If you can, just stick them in your Bible. We handed them out. They're from Dr. Jeremiah from Turning Point Ministries. But it just would be helpful as we go along. This is actually the first time um, that we uh, are probably going to point to it. But um, So it, it just helps you with the timeline that, that God lays out here in this book and understanding the division that he created in it. And, uh, but this is the first time. Um, that the rapture is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Now, uh, there's four prominent places at least. I'm talking about prominent. Like, this is clearly about the rapture of the church before we even get to the book of Revelation. We got Matthew 24, uh, 36 to 46, John 14, 1 uh, to, to 4, of course, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, Titus 2, 13. I talked about that when I was praying earlier. Um, we know that Jesus is referring here in verse 10 to the rapture. He's referring to Christ returning in the clouds to take up the Christians who uh, are going to go up to him uh, to be with him in, in heaven. And we know the timing of it because Jesus clearly says here that it's going to occur before something. It's going to occur to save these Christians out of the hour of temptation. And the Greek word that's translated there, temptation, it might even be different if you have a modern English version, uh, can also be translated as testing, the hour of testing, or the hour of tribulation. And so we know here that Jesus is referring to that coming seven-year period of tribulation that's described in chapters 6 to 19. Hold on, we're going to be there for a while. It's chapters 6 to 19. We're not going in there yet, but that's what Jesus is referring to here when he talks about the hour of temptation, that, that seven-year period of tribulation that occurs after the rapture. He's not referring to just the general tribulations that you experience and that I experience. These Christians are experiencing. He said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. Don't fear, I've overcome the world. He's not talking about those general things because he describes this time of tribulation here as one that has what? Come upon the whole world, all the world. Well, that's never happened as of yet where there's been a worldwide type of, of um, tribulation like is described in chapters 6 through 19. Now, I've got to tell you, um, there, there are Christians that believe there is no rapture. There's a, there are Christians who believe that. They'll be in heaven with us. Um, they, they just believe that Jesus will return here to earth and make everything new. Now, to believe that, you've got to disregard a lot of other verses in the Bible. Specifically, Jesus teaching about the rapture in John 14, right? Because Jesus told his disciples there that he was uh, going to go away. <laughs> he was going to do what? Prepare a, a place for them. And then what would he do? He'd come back and he'd receive, receive them unto himself. So that where he is, they can be also. Now, you have to disregard that to, to not believe that. There, there's also Christians who believe in a rapture, but they believe differently than, than we do here. Um, they believe that it, it'll happen in the middle of these seven-year tribulation we'll study in chapters 6 to 19. Some Christians believe it'll happen uh, at the end. And again, to do that, you have to disregard uh, a lot of uh, other scriptures that teach us uh, otherwise. They believe Christians will go through this seven 
year period, at least three and a half years, or maybe the, the whole thing. The issue with it, believing that that would happen, is that God tells us in his word that no man knows the day or the hour of his return for us. And Jesus gets really specific about the events in that seven years in chapter 6 to 19. So specific, it'd be pretty easy to tell when the halfway point was or when the end was. So, uh, I mean, that, that's a problem. Another issue uh, with, with especially the one at the end is it just doesn't make sense. Like, why would Jesus return to rapture us and then, like, haul us right back up? It's, the rapture is not a bungee jumping situation. It's not what God has intended for us. Here's the biggest problem with believing the rapture happens after the start of the tribulation. Or when we get to the end of this chapter, you're not going to hear any more about the church. Church, chapter 1, chapter 2, 3, chapters 2 and 3 are all about the church. Letters to the churches. Let, the, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But you get done with chapter 3 and you don't hear about the church anymore. Why? Because we're not here. Where are we? We're in heaven. We're in glory with the Lord. Praise the Lord. So um, verse 10, it tells us here that Jesus will keep Christians from the hour of temptation. Look, if you're a person who's willing to mark in your Bible, underline, highlight that little word from, those who believe the rapture uh, won't happen before the tribulation, they say, well, Jesus is just promising here, he'll keep Christians through. He'll help you get through it. He'll help you persevere through it. Well, if that's what Jesus meant, what do you want to say? Jesus could have used the word, the Greek preposition that, that we translate through. There's a lot of that going on in the New Testament. He uses through. He don't use through. He uses a little one. As you know, as small as from is, uh, the Greek word that Jesus uses here is ek. <laughs> E-K. Funny little word. But it's an important little word. Because you know what ek means? It means from. It means out of and to. As in, I am going to take you out of here, and I am going to take you to there. That's a lot different than through, isn't it? That's why Jesus didn't use through. He said from. At the end of verse 10, we got another phrase that describes the whole purpose of the terrible seven-year tribulation period that we're going to study in chapter 6 and 19. It says, it is to try them that dwell on the earth. In the book of Revelation, that phrase is used nine times, them that dwell on the earth. It always refers to the unsaved. It refers to unbelievers. I know we dwell on the earth right now. We do. Dwell is a very strong word in the Greek. It means you live here. This is your home. Is this our home? No, we're citizens of heaven. We're pilgrims here on a journey. It's not for us. The tribulation is to test them. It's to offer them a final chance as to whether or not they'll receive Christ as Savior in, a, in the midst of a period of, of all of time's great calamities. It's not for us uh, to experience. It's God's wrath for us. No, God tells a Christian in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God did not appoint you to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For, for the Christian, God's wrath will never come our way. Why not? It was all taken on our behalf by Jesus Christ when he hung on that cross. The full cup. Like Jesus said, this cup can pass from me. Lord, not my will, but thine. That full cup of God's wrath was poured out on him. We don't, we don't get it because Jesus took it on our behalf. And that's what salvation is all about. No critique here. No, uh, no critique. Just commendation. Just comfort for the church in Philadelphia. And comfort for us this morning. But there is a command. Verse 11, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. Now, uh, Revelation was probably written about 95 AD. Last book of New Testament. Around there. So you might be thinking, well, he says, Behold, I come quickly. It's been 1,928 years. Um, the word translated quickly here, other places, Revelation, it means 
I come suddenly. <laughs> I come unexpectedly. And quickly, as in when these events begin, they are going to happen quickly. It'll happen in very short order. Uh, we address what the Lord told us last week in 1 Peter 5. If there's any seeming delay in Christ's return, why, why is it? It's because he's long-suffering toward us. If he hasn't come yet, back yet, it's because uh, there are more to be saved. There's more to trust him as Savior. But the command to this church in verse 11 is this. Hold fast, says in verse 11, hold fast what thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And Jesus tells them here, he tells us, he says, stay faithful. Keep on keeping my word like you've been doing. Keep on proclaiming my name and the salvation that's found only in it. Hold fast to what you have so that no one takes your crown. What does that mean? The crown taken away, that's not about losing your salvation. I think we covered that last week too. But as Christians, we, we can lose our eternal rewards. That can happen. Throughout the New Testament, uh, different crowns uh, are mentioned that they'll be given to faithful Christians up in heaven when we stand before Christ. And after receiving them, we're going to lay them down at, at the feet of Jesus because the only reason we were ever faithful is because of his faithfulness to us, right? Jesus says, don't let anyone take your crown. Christian, don't let them take your crown. God's word describes a Christian's life in a couple places in the New Testament as an athletic competition, like a running race. And the Greek word translated here is, is stephanos. That's what crown means. That, that uh, olive, gilded olive crown that would be given to the victor, to the, to the champion, uh, to the winner. Jesus says, don't get distracted in this race following me. Don't let anyone cause you to veer off course or slow down. Stay focused. Stay faithful. Keep on going. In verse 12, to him who overcomes, to him who will hold fast, there's these promised rewards. You'll be made a pillar in the temple of my God. In Philadelphia, there were large temples that had these pillars and they would uh, be erected in honor of a public servant or a philanthropist, name engraved on it in honor of them. I remember um, when I first got out of the army, I was doing trim work, and sometimes we'd go down to the beach, holding beach, and work on some of these big beach houses, and they always had these large pillars out front, colonnades, huge, you know, and I was beautiful. When you see a pillar, what do you think of? Strength and stability, permanence. And that's the idea here, the eternal reward Jesus holds out to them. You'll no more go in and out. You'll have a home, permanent home, eternal home with me forever. And then Jesus promises overcomer. He promises a faithful Christian. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I'll write on him my new name. Well, that's a lot of names, isn't it? <laughs> now, people always want to know, what is, I don't know what your name's going to be in heaven. The idea here is, uh, you know, naming something, it shows ownership, shows possession and identification with, with whatever's named. And the greatest reward we can be offered is an eternal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. You know, like the other six messages to these churches, this message is for Christians. Those are the ones who are going to be raptured up. Uh, and, and listen, one of the most worrisome things that I experience as a pastor, I'm not alone in this, I, I've heard other pastors express it, is the reality uh, we know that the rapture could happen at, at any time. It might happen before we're done here this morning. In the next five minutes, it might happen sometime this week. And, and one of the most worrisome things is that um, come next Sunday, there might be people trying to get in here. There might be people here this morning who are trying to get back in here. And um, we won't be here. 
not raptured because they never truly trusted in Jesus as Savior. I don't know like what they were basing their salvation on. Maybe they sat and heard decades of the gospel presentations that there's only one way we're saved, and that's by trusting in who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross to save us for us. It's not by what, we're, what, what any works we've done or what we might have done up there in that tank or out in some mill pond. Praise the Lord, you need to be baptized and follow Jesus Christ, but it doesn't save you. Only God's grace, your faith in God's grace to us in Jesus saves you. People who thought, well, I don't know, granddaddy founded this church, and I've been there, you know, at least once a month ever since. Well, good. But are you saved? Have you been born again? People who depend on their works, church membership, or people who are just never really serious or genuine about trusting. Look, if that is you, get that settled today. Don't miss out on Christ's return for those who are his. Right now, call out to him in prayer as I'm talking. Uh, tell him you're trusting who Jesus is and what he's done for you to, and you want him to be your savior. And, and let me know if you've done that. I want to rejoice with you. Christian, this is written to you. Are you holding fast, Jesus follower? God, has, he set before us here at Dublin First Baptist an open door. Oh, we have open doors here in this church. Praise the Lord, amen? A church that cares about missions and that's active. And we've got open doors, uh, a multitude of different ministries, mission opportunities to make disciples and you ought to be a part of them. If, you, if you're saved, you've got the Holy Spirit indwelling you, wanting to fill you. The Holy Spirit has given you a gift, maybe more than one, and you need to be using it. You need to be active, making disciples. And if you, that's the one task he left us with here until he returns. How you do, are you doing that? How are you doing? Are you teaching Sunday school? Are you working in youth? Are, are you making disciples outside of the church? You need to be involved in the church, but you also need to be doing it outside. I mean, going to your coworkers, going to your family, your neighbors. When you have opportunities, seize those opportunities and have gospel conversations with them. Are you holding fast and relying on the Lord? The Christians here were, man, they're a little group. <laughs> they had little strength, but because their strength was the one who was omnipotent, their strength was in the one who has all strength, um, their strength was strong. Will you, will you stop focusing this more on what you don't have and will you give everything you do have to the Lord and will you watch what he can do when you do that? Will you tell the Lord this morning, I, I want to lean on you and in your strength be made strong. Are you holding fast in faithfulness to Jesus? Is this church's testimony yours? Man, I want it to be ours. I will want Jesus Christ to say, Dublin First Baptist Church, you keep my word and you proudly proclaim my name. Do you want that? It can only be our testimony if it's your testimony. It has to be all of our testimony. This morning, will you turn to Jesus, tell him that, that from here on out, you want a life of keeping his word, proudly proclaiming his name to be your commitment. Tommy, will you come and lead us in a time to respond to God's word this morning?